Hi, and welcome to MBA Ladies. We wanted to mention that this week we are using Zoom to record audio, and sometimes audio quality can be irregular. Thank you for continuing to listen. Welcome to MBA Ladies, a podcast by women about the MBA and business experience. I'm Emily. And I'm Nora, and we're your host. Today, we're going to be diving into the negotiation process with the help of our amazing professor, Tim Vogus. Professor Vogus is an award-recognized professor at Vanderbilt's Business School. He teaches leadership development skills to business students as well as negotiation skills. He also conducts research that focuses on strengthening safety culture within the healthcare setting. Thank you for joining us, Professor Vogus. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Because who better to talk about gender and negotiation than some middle-aged white dude? They always have lots of opinions about women and negotiating. So, you know, please give more airtime to those folks. <laughs> well, welcome. Um, we did a little searching online just to kind of, because I knew that like women disproportionately didn't negotiate salaries. Even just like from my own experience, like I didn't even negotiate my scholarship initially. I kind of like stumbled and was like, no, like I don't want to come off ungrateful, so I'm just not going to do it. And I had to be talked into negotiating my scholarship from people around me. And so I looked it up and approximately 20% of women never negotiate their salary at all, according to Harvard Business Review, which the sad part, it leads to women potentially losing approximately $1 million over their 45 year career. So that was kind of a lot to swallow, um, just because of the idea of like, because of the fact that we don't want to negotiate or we're afraid or we don't know how, we just lose out on such a great opportunity. And so I would love to take the time just to really understand what thoughts you have in terms of how can we better understand negotiation and how can we prepare for a negotiation? Yeah, so uh, it's a great question. And it's great that you did you did the homework. Of course you did before, you were ready. So I think one of the big things in thinking about that discrepancy about who negotiates or not, is I think sometimes what it amounts to is women take the rules of the game serious. Meaning like if it's not explicitly stated, that something is negotiable, there isn't the presumption that that negotiation is a possibility. So if those rules around it become a little bit less ambiguous, you find that some of these different, these gender-based differences in willingness to negotiate go away, right? So some of the effects on salary negotiation, uh, gender-based differences disappear. Wages are stated to be explicitly negotiable. So that's something that's kind of structural that could be now, uh, a lot throughout I, our conversation, I think we're going to be toggling a little bit between the structure of what could be and what should be versus the reality of what currently is. So sometimes when we're talking about the reality of what currently is, I'm going to be saying things that are about different kinds of interpersonal processes. Should women have to engage in any kind of different interpersonal process in the course of negotiating? The answer is, of course, no. But some of the circumstances around backlash, even from other women in negotiations, uh, need to be recognized as a current reality. Now, what, so we can work on that in two, on two fronts. We can work on that on an interpersonal front, which we spend some time talking about, and also on a structural front, where we improve some, you know, reduce some of the ambiguity of the rules around the 
maybe make pay more transparent, make the, you know, the whole process more transparent that can help quite a bit. So one of the other things that you said right away, Nora, was about being seen as ungrateful. And I think that's something that a lot of people experience in negotiation, but I think women especially experience it in negotiation because there are differential kind of expectations around warmth and relational, uh, kind of a relational orientation. So there is some evidence that even when women do negotiate and try to embrace some of the spirit of what people might think of as effective negotiation tactics, they sometimes experience backlash in negotiations or assertiveness because there are some sex-based stereotypes around assertiveness and agreeableness. And that even dates back to this horrible case of Price Waterhouse versus Hopkins, where a woman who was coming up for partner was told she needed to go to charm school and she was too mannish and do all just these awful, horrific kinds of things in there. So that's some of the backlash that can be experienced. Now, the good news is not that that happens, that's obviously the bad news, but the good news is that some simple things that are adjustments to negotiation that we should all be making anyways can be helpful in reducing some of that experience of that. One of the big things if, is if you view yourself mentally, right? if you think about yourself as advocating for the interests of others when you're doing the negotiation, so you view yourself not as, I'm pushing for more for me, but I'm advocating for a set of principles you know, about fairness and transparency. I'm negotiating on behalf of women everywhere to get a fair and equitable deal. You know, like having those kind of things animating you can help you uh, negotiate more effectively, but also thinking about how what you're asking for is in your interest, but it's also in the organization's interest as well. So giving me more money for a signing bonus helps me get set up and started more effectively so I can be fully productive from the outset. Right? Like that's something that aligns interests. And so when women or any, but especially when women uh, negotiate in that kind of way with the organization's interest in mind, even when they're asking for something for themselves, tend not to experience that backlash. That, experience, that backlash that women disproportionately experience goes away. So when you're advocating on behalf of a set of interests and you're aligning your interests with those of the organization, you're giving a legitimate, uh, legitimate reason and signaling concern for the broader organization. So that's something that you can advocate for more but not be seen as being ungrateful, not experiencing some of those backlash. I think that's a really interesting point because for me, whenever I'm in a place where I'm negotiating, I'm like, I feel guilty that I'm greedy or I'm asking too much or the company like it deserves me to work there, but not that much, not for that price. So that's very interesting that, you know, changing that frame of reference so that you're like, well, in negotiating a higher salary, it's not just great for me, but it's great for others and for the company as well. I think that's super important to note. Right. And that's where some of, so Emily, your point's an excellent one, because that's also where some of the structural issues come into play. Because you should, it shouldn't be based on you having to feel a certain way to get what's justified for the work you're going to be doing. That's where the structural piece is. Like, we should be pricing jobs in an equivalent way, right? Like, we should be thinking about, I'm negotiating for what the work is worth. Right, like, and that should be clear, right, about what that work is actually worth. And there are, you know, so some of the, the reasons why there are differential effects too is there are differences in kind of networks and how embedded people are in networks where they might have better or worse information. And, you know, men still continue to be overrepresented at the higher levels of organizations, so they might have better insight into based on their personal networks and connections 
where are the what the actual salaries are, what jobs are actually priced at. So it might just be a function of that differential information. You might feel like you're asking for too much because you just don't have access to that information. So again, that's another case for kind of structural transformation around around tra more transparency as a way to kind of reduce some of this uh, gender divide. But also, I think there are some tactics that you can try too. If you know that notice that you're systematically like underselling yourself in some kind of way, I think one tactic that I found helpful in my own in my own life, as well as in coaching others and working through the course, is having you set your target, what you hope to get out of immigration. You know, you would err on the side of being reasonable and always seeing the other party's side and their interests and always accommodating them, you know, set your target maybe 15% high because you know you tend to be reasonable. So let's bump it up a little bit and test it out. And once you get that experience of, hey, it doesn't feel that bad and I am very reasonable, so maybe my additional 15%, maybe that's not even, right? And you kind of test out and say, what are some things that I can do that I can learn about myself and adjust my tactics accordingly? I think that's a really interesting point um, about negotiating communally and, and focusing on the better of everyone rather than just your self-interest because one of the points that the article focused on was that women tend to advocate for others and when they advocate for themselves they're seen as selfish or bossy um, or just not liked. And so one of the things that they encouraged readers to do was to focus on what you're saying, like using, let's say you're advocating for getting an MBA, don't advocate saying like, oh, I need this to be better for myself, but because of getting your MBA, now you're taking care of the company and you're able to manage others below you more effectively. And so I, I think what's really interesting that I would love to talk about is like the transparency piece and like how like I've asked other people that are in current positions, like, oh, like, what are you paid? Like, what did they offer you? And it's a very like taboo subject. Like they don't want to talk about it. And it's kind of like, how dare you ask? And so I just wonder like, how can we make that more transparent? And of course, like I can be more transparent with others when I'm offered a job, but how do I open that up for others to feel comfortable to tell me what they know? Yeah, so I think you're right. That's hard because there's huge variation organization to organization, pay transparency and things like that. Like even you take a place like, for example, Vanderbilt versus State University. So like, no, but there's no documentation of how much I make versus if I was at University of Illinois or University of Michigan or somewhere like that where everybody's salary is listed. Now there's some kind of tricky ways where they can sometimes hide some of those funds and things like that, but uh, to not fully reveal what people make, but but there's difference in transparency because one's state versus being private. So I think where you can start to get, and this is some of the value of the MBA, is you get embedded in that kind of in that network so you can at least know among your peers or among recent alums. My experience has been at Owens, you hear and there the career management center keeps kind of track paid in recent years and the alums my experience has been they're they're very willing to disclose to uh, shared members of the Owen community now that's not great for societal change but that's that's good at least for helping you have a better or representative sense of what's going on in the market I do think things like Glassdoor and salary.com well not perfect start to help with transparency too because there are more people are disclosing and saying hey here's where i'm at so you get at least a better sense of 
these types of jobs need to be in this type of range in this region of the country, right? So that can help you in negotiating in two ways. One, in how what target you set for yourself and what you think is realistic, and then how you articulate that. Because when you go in with, I'm just advocating on the principle of market fairness for somebody with my skills and my background and my experiences because I know they will contribute at this level to the organization. That's an argument that doesn't engender the backlash. And so that's kind of way to work around it. So I think there are some things about the kind of the Owen network that might be helpful to uh, gain a more grounded understanding. And I do think organizations, some organizations are coming around on being more transparent about pay and pay equity, like uh, Salesforce, Benioff's uh, company, right? You know, so they had an issue where some women brought up that there was pay and equity. He said, no, no way, that's not possible. We're an aggressive, right-minded organization. That's not happening here. So we opened up the data to them and said, hey, they'll find it, if we find it, we'll fix it. Well, they found it and they fixed it, right? Like, so making that more discussable and making that more open, and that's a choice organizations can make. There's no rule that that can't be disclosed, right? And there are even some organizations that are kind of exploring possibilities of, of no negotiation, salary, right? Just price the job and everything. Same thing. That's also another way. If you eliminate this element, right, you know, there's going to be, there should be fairer, more equitable outcomes. Where the job is a job and everybody gets priced. It's interesting that we're bringing up, you know, open pay versus closed paid. I just finished taking Professor Maria Triana's class, Strategic HR, and that was a big section. We had a debate in class actually one day where it was like, what do you think is better from the perspective of the employee? Now let's switch to the company. And a lot of people, were like private pay is better. I was, you know, one of them because that's how it's always been. You know, how I've always had my experience in my career was okay, I talk about this. Somebody might be able to talk about their pay with me on their own accord, but like not having that open and available was very strange and foreign to me. But it was so interesting going through that conversation, kind of having my attitude shift and being like, oh, it isn't like all hell breaks loose and like everybody's all like, wait, she's making this and he's making this. And like, it's very important to be able to have those open and frank discussions and have that information available so that we can start to, you know, make this issue not an issue anymore. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think some of us might even, uh, this might not have been the case with you, but I think sometimes when people think about pay transparency, they might not necessarily want it because they might think, well, I have really unique and idiosyncratic skills so I can get a better deal for myself, right? And if, the less that's known, because I mean, even when you think about like going to buy a car or something like that, when is it more likely that you're gonna get a better deal? Everybody's, when it's a very busy time or when it's not, right? Like when it's not, right? Because they can make a one-off idiosyncratic deal and they don't have to worry about setting precedent. So why, you know, might people want lack of transparency sometimes? Well, I think I can get a better deal for me, right? So it's kind of like optimizing the individual versus optimizing the system, right? Like it's a trade-off there. Yeah, when I, I think about it, I, I often like think about like all of the employees, like it's really in our best interest for us to like communicate and use this knowledge to create like a an expectation for everyone. And when there's only a few people who know what's going on, then it benefits like the person at the top or the one person who's getting that high salary. And so it makes sense why it's still a problem, but it's definitely like, it's not in my best interest or Emily's or, or anyone who's starting out to like not communicate in terms of like where we're starting. Like we're just competing against each other in a way that's not beneficial. 
right? And people might make assumptions about what everyone else is making. I think everybody's getting a better deal than they are, so they might have a sense of a grievance that they carry with them. And if you have to work interdependently with those folks, right? Because we know team-based work is more popular in workplaces now where everything's teams, teams, teams. That's harder to do if you're harboring some kind of grievance and think, well, you know, Nora thinks Tim's a schmuck and he doesn't know anything. Why is he getting paid well? You know, that guy doesn't bring anything to the team and I'm driving all our results. I did nothing, right? You know, so it, and that might not be the case. I might be getting paid very little. And I just have no option. Right? I act like I'm a big shooter or something like that, right? And so without that kind of disclosure, you know, it might inhibit our ability to do that team-based team -based work in other kinds of ways, right? Because we're asking people to be open and transparent in all kinds of ways at work. I wanted to ask you a question in regards to, so in terms of like most of the MBA students are going to, have an internship this summer. And the, the best way that I've seen for negotiation is when you have an alternative, but when you're only offered one opportunity where you're, you don't have alternatives at the moment, how do you pursue a negotiation when you don't have alternatives and really walking away it means that you're going to have to start the process all over again. So what does that process look like and, and how do you maintain confidence through that negotiation? It's a great question. So we, when we, so you're right, you would typically, one of the foundational elements of any negotiation class you take from anyone is develop your alternatives. And we call that a best alternative to a negotiated agreement, a backup, what you get when you walk away. And you said in the case where you don't have another offer, you know, you have to start the whole thing off over. Well, that's your alternative, right? Your alternative is to continue looking, right? So you do have an alternative. It may not be super appealing to you, but you do have that alternative. And you know there might be something better that's down the line. So you just have to know what that walk away point is, right? What's that point in which it's it's not working? You can absolutely negotiate even when you have no alternative. So what do you try to do? So you try to emphasize the uniqueness that you bring to the role. What are the unique strengths you bring? How are they especially good fit for the nature of the role? How, what's the kind of value that you'll uniquely be able to deliver? So that's something you emphasize because you want to say that when you're hiring me, you're getting something special and unique, right? Like that makes you more advantageous because you think through what is their alternative? They might not have good alternatives either. I think we presume all the time that organizations have infinite alternatives and we have one or none, right? Like there's no backup points. But if your skills are really unique, they might only be wanting to hire you because you're the only one who can fill the role. So you want to emphasize your, the uniqueness of your fit. I think that's the uniqueness of your skills and expertise. Uh, to extend it's relevant uh, because I think that can help you negotiate even without alternatives because that's something you're uniquely providing. I think the other thing you can do is, and this is what we were talking a little bit about in response to Emily's question, is thinking about what's the, what's the market date, right? Like what else is going on? You know, what is the market say for somebody with your skills and this type of job? the course of the summer, what's a fair market rate for this job? So if they're underpaying, sometimes employers, especially if they're new to recruiting MBAs or haven't had an MBA intern in a while or something like that, they might just legitimately need to be educated. They might be operating off of outdated assumptions about what the appropriate rate is. And sometimes, you know, people might, they might try to squeeze, right? Like that just might be an organizational culture. People will try to, you know, get, people don't get what they deserve, they get what they negotiate. Right? Like that might be a kind of an ethos inside an organization. So counteracting with market data 
where it's not just your assertion, hey, I'm worth more. You're going to offer me 112,000. I think I'm worth 125. Why? Because of well, that number sound. You know, instead, it's grounded in something that's real out there. For somebody with my skills, experience, this type of job, this seems to be the going rate. So if we can get there, I'm ready to sign up. So I think you can offer those types of things. And you can also offer your agreement to accepting the position, right? Like that's a value to them. They want to hire you. So therefore, you say, yeah, I'll go along with this. Great, they're done. They don't have to recruit because that has costs for the organization too. So that's something of value you have, even when you have no alternatives, right? Like if you're willing to wrap it up under a specific set of circumstances, outline those and say, hey, I'm willing to sign on if we can get this done. So I think those are all things you can do within the course of, you know, even if you don't have alternatives. And sometimes you can do all of that right, and they can still say, nope, we don't have anything. So what can you do? Well, you can uh, procure alternatives in the future. Have uh, headhunters be looking for you, right? Like get outside offers. That can sometimes help. That tends to be how universities work in terms of people getting significant raises. You get a, you know, another university wants to steal you, and then all of a sudden, wow, you're you're very important to your current university. Otherwise, like, hey, let's keep them on the cheap. So I think I think that's one thing you can do, and you can also negotiate at this time if they say no. Hey, you know, if I perform well in this role, three months, six months, nine months, can we revisit my salary? Like, can we think about a promotion? Or can we, you know, identify some criteria that will get me closer to what I think is the, the market rate, what I what I've seen is the market rate for somebody else? Right. So sometimes you can just flex on the on the time side of it. Something that I've heard often is people always say, like, once you get to the point where they offer you the job and it's time to negotiate, like they already want you. So it, it doesn't hurt to negotiate because like the worst they can say is no, but let's say that you, you ask for a certain number and they say no, do you believe that the only thing really hurt is your pride or do you think that there are some backlashes for asking for something and not getting that? Yeah, so I think the employment negotiation is different than buying a car or other kind of one-off negotiations, right? You have a long horizon of the future, hopefully right, at the organization. So you want to stay there. It's an important relationship. You don't want to over-negotiate it. You don't want to lose sight of what's most important. Uh, and what's most important is having a job that you like, being fairly paid, yes, all those kind of things. I think there can be some risk in negotiating those things, but I don't think it should preclude you from negotiating. If there's something you want and need that makes it easier for you to accept the offer, it makes it easier for you to be successful from the outside, you should ask them. Even if they have a history of not typically negotiating, you make the case that you need it for X, Y, and Z reason that's going to make you more effective employee or that's key for you accepting the position. You need to let them know. You need to reveal what your interests are and what it, what it will take to get you there. And if they can't do anything about it, that's fine. You need to learn that though. So I think you can test the limits of that. So I think it's fine for them to say no, for you to ask and for them to say no, just remembering the things we talked about earlier. Are you framing it in terms of, how you can be a more effective employee as well as just getting more for me, right? Are you, are you framing it in terms of a principle that you can both agree to? These are unique and idiosyncratic skills that are valuable to the organization. This is what, how the market values somebody like me, those kind of things, right? Like as long as you're doing those types of things, because yes, you are trying to maintain the relationship. Yes, you do want people to still like you. I'm doing air quotes, sorry, this is an audio thing. Air quotes are not helpful on audio. 
you know, so you want to keep that relationship alive because you might also be able to negotiate it. Even if you can't get it right now, you want to keep a positive relationship because you might be able to get it in the future because maybe the constraint is time and not necessarily just the I'd love to hear your thoughts, Tim. You kind of mentioned earlier how a lot of the times traditionally women feel like they have to play by the rules and negotiating or not negotiating and bringing up negotiation can sometimes not be quote unquote following the rules. So how would you recommend that, you know, if there's an opportunity that just doesn't seem to have negotiation there and they say, I don't know, somebody calls you and are like, surprise, we thought where there was going to be another round interview, but you got the job and you're here and this is a salary and let's go and go, 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 go and sign it by whenever or something like that, how in that regard would you recommend bringing up negotiation and, you know, kind of breaking the rules in that regard um, and, and finding a place to where you can negotiate something better for yourself? Great question. And I think you outlined one condition that gets in the way with that feeling of time pressure. Like if somebody calls you, especially if it's unexpected or they're like, go, 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 we need to make a decision. Those extremely time pressured situations are when bias comes in. Right, like bias about yourself and what's appropriate, and also bias on the other side. Right? Like they might react in an overly strong kind of way, and it also that time pressure can also activate our emotions, right? and make it feel like the identity stakes are higher and things like that. They're already high in an employment situation too, because it's basically somebody telling me what I'm quote unquote worth, right? So that that makes it a little bit more difficult. So what can you do to counteract some? So I think what you want to do is transform the conversation into joint problems. So how do you do that? Well, if they're giving you time pressure, you want to create some time. So if they give you an offer and they give you some time you have to respond by, you know, receive the offer, be enthusiastic and appreciative of it. Generally, you don't have to get into all the specifics. Thanks. I'm so excited to get it. I really enjoyed the interview process. I feel like this would be a really great fit. You know, let me... Think about all this great information you've given me and we'll talk we'll talk again soon or something talk again before the deadline right like so you don't have to respond right away give yourself sufficient time and set up a time when you're ready to talk you know if you're you know at a point in hit in our in our country's history and our world's history we used to get together face to face and do these things so you if you were doing that you'd want a comfortable physical and psychological environment right like conditions under which you can actually have a conversation about how do we get me to accept this job? What are the conditions under which we can resolve this where I join the company and you get, right? You know, and that makes it more like joint problem solving. We're working together to try to figure out how to get me on board. And I think framing it in that kind of way makes it less adversarial, makes it less like a breach of any kind of norms. It's figuring out how can we make this successful for both parties? And that's going to take some work from both of us, right? So we want to create conditions and create a mindset within ourselves about thinking about this as problem solving. So the problem I want to solve is how do I set myself up for success here and get compensated equitably and appropriately. I think other things that can be done that can help reduce some of the feelings of norm violation or gender expectations, all that kind of stuff, is about building relationships prior, if at all possible. So if you're interviewing, if you're negotiating hiring manager, the more the better relationship you have, where you're more an individual and less a representation of a category, be that category MBA, be that category woman, be that category whatever, right? Or some kind of intersection of multiple rights, right? You know, uh, the, the more that you're treated as an individual, the better able you are to negotiate, the less punished you are by some of the kind of 
the stereotypes and biases people have because they see you as an individual and rather than as a, a member of the cat. And I think also uh, sometimes acting in ways that are inconsistent with stereotypic perceptions. So this might come up, you know, there might be gender expectations around carbon, right? There might be some assumptions that salespeople have in that, in that environment. And this is both men and women, because one of the things that comes up in a lot of research is that men set higher aspirations against women in negotiation, and so do women. So uh, there's kind of a, you know, so you want to come in and demonstrate knowledge, competence, expert, right? Like it and just show. So uh, sometimes uh, I had a student a few years back who used to work in car dealership, and he always said people who got the best deals and got them done the quickest were the people who brought their binders, right? Like and had that and just kind of plop it on the table, right? Like they like super prepared and were really knowledgeable and demonstrated and had a facility with them. So I think you know there might be a stereotypic perception. Oh, it's a this woman's negotiating for a car. She clearly doesn't know anything about cars. And then when you present the counter evidence, you know, that goes away, right? Again, because you're becoming an individual. Now, should people have those stereotypic perceptions? Of course not, right? Like those are those are terrible, those are misogynistic, sexist. Um, so, but acting in a way inconsistent with some, knowing that those stereotypes can exist and just saying, you know, this is how negotiating with me is going. And then, you know, clarifying the ambiguity that we were talking so I think all of those things can help overcome some of those, those barriers to initiating the negotiating, feeling like I'm engaged in norm violation by doing so. And I think even some of the things that you might have, like phrases in your back pocket that you have that you can even write down. So one of the advantages of negotiating via Zoom is one can have notes. Nobody knows if you have notes. Right, like because you can because our our eye contact is always so weird on Zoom because of my because I'm like I'm talking to you via Zoom right now I am looking at both your faces but it probably looks like I'm looking away because I'm not looking at my camera right you know so we don't know where anybody's looking anyway so you can have notes up there you can have and then that's why I also encourage a lot of times negotiating over the phone because even though you lose some of the cues you can have your script have your notes take your time pause do things like that and I think sometimes. What can be helpful in the notes is if you feel like I'm weighed down by all these gender expectations about how I'm going to negotiate. Well, if you have some phrases about how you can negotiate in a more problem-solving oriented way, you know, that kind of has the relational element to it, but also gets you in moving in the direction of achieving your interest. So, you know, I think a lot of it is active listening. If I heard you correctly, I think you said that. Let me see whether I follow what you're telling me. From your point of view, the situation is like this. And this might not just be salary relationship, but any kind of business type relationship. You made a strong case. Let me see if I can explain. Here's the way it strikes me. Here's our perspective, right? Like, so you're reflecting back and understanding. I, I'm validating what you're saying, but I'm going to give you an alternate perspective, right? Like, so it's maintaining that relationality, but it's not giving, right? Like, you're not giving away. You're not making substantive concessions to preserve the relation. That's a big concern, and that happens sometimes along the gender lines, but also with, with people who might be less comfortable in negotiations too. You might make a substantive concession where I give you something in order to preserve the relation. What I'm saying is you can do some things rhetorically to do that, you know, to kind of manage the relationship without having to make a substantive concession. You can control the negotiation process without having to give up. So I think having some of these kind of phrases might help you stay on that as well. Asking for
the principle bit underneath their, their proposal, things like that. Let me see if I understand what you're saying. You know, just lots of asking. So it's also about being patient. So that comfort of the physical and psychological environment is important because then you can take your time. So you want to have a moment where you don't feel that time pressure, where you feel fully prepped, and you also feel like we're going to have the time to explore this. And I'm not going to be rushed in doing such. It sounds like um, active listening is like a huge part of being able to really negotiate with the people that are offering you a job or, or any negotiation. But it, I also get a sense that language really affects like your ability to successfully negotiate. And I think something that kind of struck me was the word like competitively negotiating a salary versus like collaborating on a salary, because I feel like those are, it kind of just like nails the whole story of like changing your mind frame. And I wondered how much like preparing your language and, and preparing like the way that you approach the topic really does affect your ability to get what you want from the conversation. I think it's helpful, but you don't need to punish yourself by having to say magic words or something like that. Feeling like in those examples I gave you, we're not to say those are the exact phrases, but they're just helpful things to recenter. So as long as you're engaged in the process of active listening and you're not engaging in competitive approaches, right? I, I think you're going to be fine whether you say that word or not. So because I, what I don't want you to feel like to leave this conversation feeling like is that if I say one of these other words, I unravel of an otherwise effective negotiation. That's not the case. You don't have to put that level of pressure on yourself. And negotiations are things that can be salvaged too, right? Like they can start off in a bad place and get turned and get pivoted back to something more constructive and productive. And I think it's just by this active listening and saying, you know, calling out what's in the room. If you feel like you're out of sync negotiating with somebody, let's take a step back. What are we both trying to accomplish? Right? Like in revisiting it in that kind of so I think more of the kind of the process and approach around collaboration, whether rather than just having to say the word collaboration or avoid the word competitive things like that. I think by the actions and the nature of the joint problem solving activity, that's more important than getting the precise words right. But there is some evidence that, you know, framing like if we framed a negotiation and we introduced it as, you know, the community game versus the competition game or versus win as much as you can or something like that. People will approach that differently. They will have a different orientation. So yes, you want to get people in a community mindset. Yes, in the experimental context, you're using a specific word you can do that. But you can do that through the way you interact without using those I, I think it's so interesting, you know, just seeing how as women you can do so much through this whole negotiation process, but just like you were saying, Tim, and you two know how structurally it's very difficult sometimes because you can do all the prep work and have your phrases and make sure and still come off as bossy or pushy. We were talking a little bit before we started recording about a recent article that came out. It's December 14th while we're recording this, um, but this weekend there was an article that came out in the Wall Street Journal about, you know, titles and Dr. Jill Biden versus just First Lady Jill Bryden, how she needs to drop that doctrine. It's so interesting, like even in that higher place after she's been established for so many years and has had doctor, that isn't anything new for her, but how people are still saying like, yes, you need to get rid of this. You know, it's very interesting how going down to like the core, sometimes you can do the very best that you can do. And it's just hard because people will still kind of have those opinions and those thoughts about how women should or shouldn't be. Right. Well, and there's, and there's recent research to show that, you know, Jill Biden, Dr. Jill Biden needing to be assertive about the title is actually necessary because there was a study done of, I believe it was 
academic introductions and that men are given the title uh, almost twice as much as women who might just be referred to by their first name or just their last name or something like that, right? Like, so, so the assertiveness of title, there are some people that are granted that automatically and some people who are not. So saying, I have this competence and have this expertise, I'm going to use my title to you as, as emblematic of that seems to be cut differentially. So it cuts differentially across gender, but especially at intersectional identities, so black women, for example, might have to even assert more around exactly that to, to be afforded the same kind of privilege or, or recognition of expertise, you know, um, that they they wouldn't get otherwise, right? Like credentials are being questioned unless they're being directly asserted. And this, I mean, the article, the op-ed, as such as it was, was even more problematic because it was just it was just misogynistic and really insulting and referring to uh, her as kiddo in like the first line of the whole thing. And it was just you know denigrating that an EDD is not a real grant. You know you are shouldn't be called doctor unless you delivered a baby or something like it was you know all this kind of stuff. And one thing that's interesting about this is as Nora mentioned in the intro. I do a lot of research in healthcare context. And healthcare professionals, you know, physicians have no problem. They call me doctor, and they call everyone with a PhD doctor for it. And I ever call myself it, you know, or introduce myself in that. And that's some of, you know, probably the privilege that's afforded me based on you know, my demography. But I find that in medical context, they have no problem calling PhD doctors, right? Like, so the, for this person who is neither a PhD nor an MD to assert that you can't. You know, you're not a real doctor if you have a PhD. Well, you know, medical professionals don't seem to have a problem. And so what's the deal? She earned the degree. She did the work. It was denigrating her dissertation and all this other kind of stuff. It's just unnecessary. And just why? And why her and not other people? Why not go after uh, Sebastian Gorka, who worked for the Trump administration, known as Dr. Sebastian Gorka? Right? Like, he asserts that he has a PhD. Right? Like, so why choose her to single out? So you don't get to control how you are identified. I think it's so interesting too, during you know the whole election, how the titles that everybody would use would be Trump, Pence, and Biden, Kamala. It would be Harris, it would be first name. And so that was very interesting too, to have, you know, you never hear like, oh yeah, Mike. It's like, who's Mike? Oh, you're talking about Mike Pence. Like, it's you never use that first name and to have, you know, suddenly that's just a thing that happens whether it be on purpose or not. And sometimes I think people genuinely don't even notice and they're like, oh yeah, come to think about it. That is kind of weird how we do that. But those titles, I think is so, so important to, to just be mindful of. Right, right. And it's just, you know, if let the person choose, right? Like afford, you know, it's, it's the basic principle, right? Like afford the person the maximum amount of respect. And if they use a more familiar type of title back with you, great, then use that, right? But, but don't presume that you have the right to call somebody something else, right? Like, so whenever I email a professor anywhere else that I've never met, I use the title, right? Like I refer to them in that way. And then if they respond with their, just their first name, that's fine. And we're on that basis. You don't presume it. I think it's interesting. You pointed out that like when people are intersectionally, like when they have, when they're black and a woman, they have to therefore even more so represent their title and make sure that it is respected. And I think that that has like a negative 
pushback on them because then it's like this negative cycle of like, oh, they're really just throwing their title in my face. And it's not, it's even less respected because they're trying to be respected. And so I think it's, it's just really disappointing to see that that was posted by the Wall Street Journal because, you know, I think people want to say like, we've come so far and we have, but like the fact that that was published shows just kind of where we are. And what's the importance of it? What important, I mean, there, you can reject op-eds, right? Like you don't need to print them all, right? Like what, what important problem is that one solved, right? Like, cause that's a, that's a place to in, introduce interesting and new ideas. Wall Street Journal is one of the most revered publications of all of our print media, right? And like that, that would be the priority item to have in there. It's just bizarre, right? Like there's, there's, there's no need for it. And you're right, Nor. it's very similar to the point you were making about negotiation. So when you feel like you have to put your credentials out there often, you know, that too can induce backlash, especially, I mean, in what that article reflects is essentially that backlash by somebody who does not have those titles. So is feeling threatened by those titles in some kind of way. So I'm lashing out and trying to exert influence in a different way by diminishing that person. Right? You know, so people feel their own identity threat as a result. When a nicer norm would just be, hey, let's have some respect. And if somebody's earned a credential, they can invoke that how they choose and show that, afford them that respect. It's a pretty simple principle, right? Like going with, you know, when we talked about an LTO, to, to throw it back to an article that we had there, the Christy Rogers article, right, about owed and earned respect. So owed respect, right? Like we just give, you know, people can have choice about what they're called, right? Like what title they use, or what pronoun they use, right? Like these are not big deals. Like, let people have some choice over themselves in their lives, right? Like you show a little bit of respect to everybody. It sounds like such a simple thing, but it's really difficult for some people. <laughs> well, because people feel like I think that it's a threat or an attack on something they hold dear. And I don't, I have trouble understanding that sometimes because, we all are different in different kinds of ways, so why not just try to meet people where they are, right? Like, uh, you know, not treat people how you want to be treated, the golden rule, which is helpful, but uh, but treat people how they want to be treated. It's sometimes called the platinum rule, right? Like, think about, you know, try to take that other person's perspective. And I think it was you, Emily, earlier on, who were mentioning about uh, active listening questions and things like that. You know, the essence of, if you take one thing away from this conversation about what is negotiation about it's about gaining empathic understanding right like it's about listening to what the other side wants and needs out of the negotiation and kind of figuring out a way to work with them now that doesn't mean you know so i think sometimes we think about empathy as just feeling what the other person's feeling and that's a, that's a form of empathy but when, with negotiation the thing that i think is most important is understanding why the person thinks the way and what the criteria they're using for decision making so what you're doing when you enter the negotiation, why I talk about this problem solving is precisely that. You're trying to figure out what they know and understand and how they think about the issue. And then you're offering up your own perspective and trying to find a kind of mutual agreement. I think that's a, that's a great way to look at it. Just like focusing on like, of course, you need to have your prepared understanding of what you need and what you want. But then to really get what you need and what you want from that company, you need to also understand where they are and what they can give you to really make that negotiation possible otherwise you're just going in almost blindsided because you don't know what they need or want and you're just you can come off selfish or ignorant because you're not being aware of the other side right yeah negotiation is not a pure act of persuasion where i'm just going to be so compelling in my presentation 
that they will be wowed to give me everything that I want, right? Like you, you have to reflect some kind of understanding. And, and you can see how reflecting that understanding would eliminate any kind of sense of backlash because you're showing that there's a mutuality and I've done my work and I know how you think about these issues and I'm trying to match that. Absolutely. I think it's a really, really good point to just remember that it's a two-way street and that, you know, like you were saying earlier, Tim, they might be desperate for somebody and you fit the mold and they really want you really bad or vice versa. And you just never know what that situation is like and just kind of reminding yourself that this is a two-way street and, you know, they have enough room to negotiate just as much as I do and things like that. It's just really important to remember in a situation of where you need to negotiate. Right. Don't presume you're inherently weak in the negotiation you're negotiating against a huge corporate right? <laughs> you know, because you might very well be bringing exactly the right complement skills that they need. Since we're talking about gender, do we want to talk about my favorite female rappers? Yes. <laughs> Tell us more. <laughs> we got to start at the beginning uh, with MC Light, one of my all-time favorites, L-Y-T-E. Light as a rock, cha-cha-cha, cappuccino, great stuff. She's, she's a legend, roughneck. All-time great, Queen Latifah, who is a legend in the field. We we share the same birthday, Queen Latifah and I, so we're we're bonded. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. She conquered all domains, right? She was a she was a great rapper, a member of the, the Native Tongues Collective. She was great, uh, a, a very formative influence on me. Let's see, who else do we want to talk about? Well, so the more recent ones, obviously, Cardi B, Megan Stallion, excellent. I also, many people don't like Nikki and Cardi B. I, I happen to like some of Nicki Minaj's stylings. I, I think she's got some, some uh, lyrical chops. So those are, those are a few of some of my favorites. Oh, I shouldn't leave out one of my all-time favorite groups, uh, Northern State, which is a three-woman rap collective from Long Island, New York, who I actually performed with on stage. And I think I showed a short clip of that in class. Uh, and I actually brought them to Owen when they did a guest lecture in Dave Owen's innovation class because they were known for being pretty innovative in their own right. And uh, they're great. Uh, they are no longer a group, unfortunately. One of them is now like a big high profile DJ who does all kinds of shows and clubs and stuff like that. But the other two are like uh, entrepreneurs in different, in different fields. I just wanted to preface for everyone listening. So uh, Professor Vogus likes, of course, he likes rap music. And before oh, yeah. every class, <laughs> he would uh, just play like one random song. And I never knew the song. I literally would have to look up whoever you were playing. But I learned so much. And I'm taking notes as you say all of these different artists, because I have a lot to learn. Yeah, there are many. Just, that's just scratching the surface. I, I, I mean, she brought that up, but then I felt like I, I introduced it. I better have some in, uh, in the chamber. Oh, I was just going to say, I think it's funny how you bring up rap and women in rap. And I think, you know, you brought, mentioned Megan Thee Stallion and Cardi B, and they had their recent song, WAP, and a lot of people came out and were like, this is just vulgar and terrible and awful. And it is, you know, racy. But I think it's so interesting how male rappers had been rapping about very similar things for years, and nobody really bats an eye. And so having these two women go ahead and, you know, take the reins and, you know, rap and sing WAP and all that stuff. And I just think it's very interesting, again, kind of taking it back to all of this and the systematic way things are, how, you know, even in rap, how it's like, oh, you can't talk about this. This is gross. But on the other foot, it's like, oh, like, this is totally okay. And it's been going on for years. Absolutely. And there's a long tradition of, 
of those types of songs in all in all forms of music, right? Like so, there there's I'm gonna forget the artist's name, but like even there were there's some records that are every bit as racy as WAP, going back to the 1930s, right? Like these underground records that people would do these kind of you know that kind of uh, content, you know, would get out there in the world, right? So it's it's not unpre as unprecedented as we think, and you're right about the double standard. Uh, what are, and that's a, a, a big reason why they do us all. And I have to mention two more artists that I think that I can't believe I left out. Missy Elliott, all-time favorite of mine, spectacular. Lauren Hill, even though she had a small number of albums, hugely impactful. And Missy, Missy and uh, Lauren are, are in the similar age demo to me. Uh, so so they, they carry special weight. I love it. We're definitely gonna create a playlist and, and learn some more. <laughs> So just wrapping things up, thank you again, Professor Vogus, for being on our podcast. We're so glad. An honorary MBA lady. We love it. Um, so for, <laughs> for those of you listening, um, you can go ahead and follow us on social media. We are MBA underscore ladies on Instagram and Twitter. Or if you want to go ahead and email us, we're MBA ladies podcast at gmail.com. And we'll go ahead and see you guys next week.